This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, April 28th, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include Apple is making the tools and documents needed for iPhone repairs available to users. The right to repair movement still has something to say. Removing outdated apps is now a trend as Apple joins Google and begins removing older software from the App Store. Apple may be forced by EU regulators to open up iMessage. And we'll discuss understanding the ports and cables for Macs and iPads. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing well. How many weeks is it now? It has been four weeks since macOS Monterey got patches for two actively exploited vulnerabilities that have still not been patched for macOS Big Sur or Catalina. Okay, link in the show notes to last week's episode where Josh explained this for several minutes. We don't need to explain it every week, but we will mention until it gets patched the fact that it's not been patched. Speaking of patches... You know what happens when you break your iPhone screen? Have you ever done that? I never have. I've never broken my iPhone screen. You have to fix it. It's kind of like patching a screen, right? If you have Apple Care, well, you just take it to the Apple guy and they fix it for you because you have, I think, two incidents a year covered by your Apple Care. But Apple recently announced that individuals would have the right to repair certain Apple devices for certain repairs. And today they announced the availability of this, which in includes for the first time ever, repair manuals online. I remember when people used to trade them on the black market, Apple repair manuals. And there is a kit that you can rent for $49, which depending on the type of repair you need, is either one or two boxes of stuff. The two together weigh 79 pounds. If you've ever seen the devices they use to take an iPhone apart, each one of them has one of these devices. One of them is like a heat device and the other is like a roller and you get all these tools and I think the right to repair people are going to be a little bit surprised when they see that it costs some $260 for a screen for an iPhone 13 plus $49 to rent the hardware, 73 steps in the manual and this is, while it's good, this is an extremely complicated thing that Apple has released. I think this is a really good thing. Apple's definitely making moves in the right direction. The repair manuals are very much a good thing. Of course, some people who are kind of purists in this right to repair movement, like iFixit, of course, are not entirely happy about everything that Apple's doing here. And I think the thing that they had the biggest issue with is that Apple is requiring you to enter a device's serial number or IMEI number, if it's a, an iPhone, for example, in order for you to be able to get access to repair the device. And they're saying, well, that's, you know, potentially problematic because that means that if Apple no longer deems that it's okay for you to repair that device, then they may not allow you to repair it. So they feel like this is a step in the right direction, but maybe not quite as as far as iFixit and, and other purists would really like to see it, Apple go. Okay, the important thing is that these are genuine Apple parts, and you can go to the phone shop down behind the bar and you can get your iPhone screen replaced, but it's not genuine Apple parts, and you don't know how well it's going to work and how long it's going to last. It is more than $260 to replace the screen of an iPhone 13 Pro. I didn't check for the larger model. It's not cheap. You can also buy these machines 
And I think in that case, you could become a repair person yourself, but every time you order parts, you'd have to give them the serial number, as you said before, to get the parts to, to sync them with the devices. So maybe there's going to be some people who will buy these and who will offer to repair for other people. But given the cost, I mean, frankly, buy Apple Care. <laughs> Yeah, it's cheaper in the long run. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of people, I mean, unless you are really, really good at working with very fragile, small equipment, if you're talking about repairing an iPhone, uh, that's not something the novice uh, will want to to do. Um, this is definitely something that you still would prefer for Apple or at least an authorized repair provider that does this all the time. It's preferable to have them do that. There's a lot of steps, and I noticed this warning at the end of the iPhone 13 Pro manual to repair a battery. It says, gently shake the iPhone. If the battery sounds loose, remove the display and the battery, then complete battery reassembly with another replacement battery. So this this doesn't sound like it's a very promising thing. Now, I guarantee that in a couple of weeks, we're going to get all sorts of YouTube videos that last three hours of every single step <laughs> as people do this and walk through it and talk about it. And I, there are people who are going to want to do this just because they can. We were talking before the show. It's like you haven't been able to fix an Apple device in a long time. You've never really been able to get into an iPhone. It wasn't that hard to get into an iPod to change the battery, but since the iPod doesn't have the security stuff, it, you know, you could just open it up with, what is it, a splodge, and you could stick in the new battery or a new hard drive. A splodge. Yeah. A spudger. A spudger, okay. There aren't many Macs you can actually open. The last one I opened was a Mac Mini 2011 or 12 that I opened, and I replaced the hard drive with a SSD, I believe. That was the last one. And I know you can still open the Mac Mini now, but you can't do much. Do you remember the Mac Mini where you could turn the circular bottom off and get access to the RAM slots? Well, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, this is definitely something that I was, I've, I've been thinking about this recently when I wrote the article about how to upgrade, you know, unsupported Macs to the latest Mac OS version. I was thinking about how much easier it used to be to replace parts to, you know, you could fully disassemble an iMac, uh, you know, in 2007. And well, you really can't do that anymore. It's yeah. just not, you know, everything is very tightly packed and it's not designed to even be taken apart anymore. But this is the case for everything. I don't even open the hood on my car anymore. Why would I even want to look in there? I don't know what any of that stuff is. If I, if I know I need to fill the water for the radiator, then I could find that. But other than that, you can't fix cars anymore either. Well, but most computers, though, you still can take them apart. They do have, you know, plenty of screws and and things that you can, you know, you can fully disassemble most computers, except for But you Apple. can't necessarily put them back together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Apple computers, uh, if, if you do take it apart, you might have trouble putting it back together. <laughs> okay, two weeks ago, we talked about the Google Play Store that was removing some old apps. And I remember saying something like, you know, it would be good if Apple did this because there are a lot of old apps that haven't been up since forever. Well, all of a sudden, Apple has started removing old apps. No, they don't listen to this podcast. A number of developers have been pointing this out, in particular on Twitter. And some of them are saying that their apps have been removed for no reason. Apple doesn't say why. They just say that they're old. And Apple's got a little quote on their App Store improvements page. It says, to make it easier for customers to find great apps that fit their needs, we want to ensure that apps available on the App Store are functional and up-to-date. 
so there was some speculation that some of these apps being removed may have had old ad frameworks that are no longer compatible with Apple's privacy. But a lot of developers saying, no, mine don't have ads. Maybe they're using APIs that are no longer supported in, uh, and I'm thinking they're still supported in iOS 15, but they won't be supported in iOS 16. So they're clearing them out before. But Apple continues, we are implementing an ongoing process of evaluating apps, removing apps that no longer function as intended, don't follow current review guidelines, or are outdated. It wouldn't be hard for them to say to developers, here's why we're removing it. I mean, these guys are paying 99 bucks a year for their developer account. Yeah, and those do sound like legitimate reasons, by the way, but the, the transparency and communication, that, that's where it sounds like Apple needs to improve here. Okay, speaking of Google and apps, Google has launched privacy labels for apps on the Google Play Store. Where did we hear about that before? Didn't some other company do a thing like that? Mm, yeah, nutrition labels, I think they called it. Yes, yes, that fruit company in California. Privacy nutrition labels is what they called it. The number of privacy calories in each one of the apps. So Google has been doing that. They announced this in May of last year. And the label says whether the developer's collecting data, what they're collecting it for, whether they're sharing it with third parties, whether data is encrypted, whether users can ask for data to be deleted, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to be a slightly different approach from Apple's, but it's a similar end game to reassure people, I guess, if that good apps are safe and protect user privacy. Right. So this is a good thing, obviously. We, we're, we're happy that Google is doing this for Android users. The thing to know if you are an Android developer, I don't imagine probably too many of our listeners are, but they have until July 20th to submit the new information that's needed for Google's version of privacy labels. So I imagine that probably Google will start removing apps if they have not been updated by that time. Speaking of Android, a really interesting vulnerability came out. We'll link to an article on Ars Technica. Critical bug could have let hackers commandeer millions of Android devices. Flaw could be exploited with malicious audio file. Now, we're not an Android podcast, obviously, but the reason for this is that the Apple lossless audio codec, which is used on Android as well as on Apple devices. Apple has updated their version of the codec over the years, but Qualcomm and MediaTek, which are the companies that make the chipsets for mobile devices, Android phones, have not updated theirs since 2011. So a quick background on Apple lossless. Apple created this pretty sure when the first version of iTunes came out. And it was to compete with the FLAC codec, free lossless audio codec, which provides lossless audio. If you decompress it, it's the same as the CD. And if you compress it, it saves about half the space. In 2010 or so, Apple open sourced it because it wasn't getting used enough and they wanted more people to use it, particularly companies selling music by download. And at that point, it became available to everyone. But it looks like Qualcomm and MediaTek have just been using that 2010 or 2011 code and haven't updated it. So what's really cool about this vulnerability, if you know audio files, you know that there are a bunch of tags, and it could be a song name, an artist, an album, lyrics, and much more. And you can put a lot of text in there. And this vulnerability is taking advantage of malicious code that's in these tags in the files. Yes, a malformed audio file, they they said, is what could trigger a remote code execution vulnerability, a very serious type of vulnerability. 
interestingly, because Qualcomm and MediaTek, which by the way, they supply mobile chipsets for approximately 95% of all Android devices in the US. So uh, that, that's not a small number of Android devices. Uh, pretty much all of them have Qualcomm or MediaTek chips. And so they hadn't updated their codecs until December of last year. So it took 10 years for them to, to update their codec which of course fixed vulnerabilities. And so if you do have an Android version that has been patched since December, then you're no longer vulnerable to these Apple lossless audio codec vulnerabilities on Android. The interesting thing about audio files is that they can carry a lot of data. You can put album artwork into audio files, and these can be very large files. On Apple Music or iTunes, you can put about 32,000 characters in the lyrics tag. So you could put you could put a short story in there. You could put tons of, of code as long as there's a vulnerability that allows that code to be executed. And someone figured it out, and that's pretty neat. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about USB and Thunderbolt ports and more. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego world-class protection and utility software for Mac users made by the Mac security experts. Okay, the European Union's Digital Markets Act is something that's going to shake things up because it's going to force Apple and other companies to allow third-party app stores and payment systems, but it's also going to require that iMessages become interoperable with other messaging systems iMessages, FaceTime, these sorts of things are inside that walled garden. Now, of course, WhatsApp and Messenger are also in their own walled gardens, but they're cross-platform, whereas for Apple's messaging system, this is not the case. Now, I kind of wonder, does this mean that Apple has to give the keys to decrypt messages to other companies? And isn't that like a security risk? A lot of people have wanted to potentially have iMessage available on Android devices. I, I think even a lot of Apple users would love to have their Android using friends and relatives have iMessage availability so they can have the, the proper blue bubbles and, and not just the color of the bubbles, but all the things that go along with it, right? The, the special effects, you know, the full screen effects with confetti or, or different things you can do. And, and most of all, the reactions, right? Being able to tap and hold on a message and put a heart or a thumbs up. And right now, if you do that in a group chat with at least one person who has an Android phone, then you get this obnoxious, you know, liked, and then it quotes the entire message. And a lot of people who are iPhone users 
really don't like seeing that. And I'm sure a lot of Android users are kind of annoyed by that too. Although I have read that recent versions of Android have actually started to show those reactions um, using uh, their own version of the reaction emojis. Um, so now it's just Apple that's lagging behind on this, which is kind of funny to me. Okay, but what I don't understand is that apparently the EU says that it's not just that iMessage has to be available for Android. It's that any app should be able to message any other app. So you should be able to send messages from WhatsApp to messages, to Messenger, to Telegram, to whatever. And that to me seems confusing. If if Apple gets forced to make an Android messages app, that's one thing, right? It's still got that security. But are we really going to have people sending messages from any app to any other app? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure how that would even necessarily be possible because you've got all these disparate systems that need to interact with each other. Typically, also, there's one texting app that's registered on your device. If you have an Android device, you can pick which app you want to be your text messaging app. And so I, I'm not exactly sure how all of these things would work together. If you're supposed to be able to receive text messages in one app, how how exactly are are they going to integrate WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and iMessage and SMS all into one app? I, I, these are all very disparate systems. And some of them have many features that others don't. WhatsApp is an entire e-commerce platform in addition to a messaging system. It, it kind of sounds like someone thinks that messaging should be simplified and there shouldn't be any extra features. Now, what it says here is that they should immediately provide this interoperability. After two years, they should expand this to group chats, and after four years, to video and audio calls. So this seems to be a gradual thing. I mean, if they can do text messages today, they can do group chats today as well. I assume that whatever is going to make that interoperability work is going to happen regardless of what type of message it is. I just find it confusing. I, if I want to use Facebook Messenger to chat with people on Facebook Messenger, regardless of what their platform is, that should be my choice. So if Apple just makes a messages app for Android, that to me would satisfy Android users. I don't yeah. want yeah. people messaging me from WhatsApp and Messenger into messages where different things are going to happen at different times. This this limits any sort of possibility for innovation at all. Yeah. Everything has to be a common denominator here. Right. I, I think there's a number of uh, of issues here that were not considered. I think whoever wrote, drafted this uh, legislation really does not understand technology, which is kind of a common problem across the world. <laughs> well, in, in governments and, and and legislatures, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and by the way, it is entirely possible already to join a FaceTime call from an Android or Windows device. Apple actually does make that possible now. You can go to a website in a browser and join a FaceTime call. So it's not it's not that this is something that can't be done already on Android, right? The yeah. one thing that they don't have right now on Android is iMessage specifically, right? Right. That's the only yeah. thing. And, and again, I 100% agree with you that it would make sense for Apple to just make their own messaging app then. Okay. So, you know, give Android users an app. They, you can already do FaceTime on an, on an Android device because that's available on the web now. But why not just give Android users 
one app that does FaceTime and also does iMessage. That would make a lot of sense. All right. We, we've got a less happy story. Bloomberg is reporting that tech giants have been duped into giving up data used to sexually extort minors. And this is really interesting. So you think that a law enforcement agency, they have reason to suspect that someone's in danger and they go to a company like Apple or Google or Facebook and they say, we need to know where this person lives and what's their phone number and all that. But what's happening is attackers are hacking into this system and in a strange way, some, some of them are going through hacked foreign police departments to get this data to then harass and extort people. There are even cases where there have been forged search warrants. Yeah, I, unfortunately, there's not really anything that you can do to sort of opt out of this or prevent these sort of attacks from happening. It's it's just the, the nature of this type of attack is such that generally these fake law enforcement requests are coming from an actual law enforcement agency's email address. They say that the exact method of the attack varies, but the typical pattern is that somebody hacks into a usually a foreign law enforcement agency's email system, and then they use a template to send an emergency data request to one of the big tech companies. And allegedly, these companies include Meta, aka Facebook, uh, Apple, Alphabet, Google, Snap, Twitter, Discord. So these are all the big tech companies, basically. Any messaging platform, any social media company, these are all potential targets. And what they'll do is they'll say that they have an emergency need to request data. They'll claim that somebody is in imminent danger, for example, that they're about to commit suicide or there's going to be a murder or abduction or something like that. And so they need emergency information. And the types of information they might request can include uh, the person's full name, their email address, and even their physical address. Unfortunately, again, there's not really much that we can do about this. This is just something that all of these big companies need to be aware of so they can more carefully analyze these requests as they're coming in. If there's anything suspicious about it, they need to think through the process of, you know, is does this look like a legitimate request before they go ahead and comply with it? Okay, Josh, how many USB ports do you have on your Mac? Let's see. Well, the MacBook Air that I'm using right now has two USB ports, and that's it. That's it. And your iMac? Let's see. Well, my my older iMac, my 2007... No, that doesn't count, because that's got, like, SCSI ports. That doesn't count. Um, I mean, I'm I, this is really the computer that I use the most, so... Okay, so, yeah. Remember the days of SCSI ports and FireWire and all of that? So I have an article on the Intego Mac Security blog, USB and Thunderbolt, Understanding Ports and Cables for Macs and iPads. And... Part of what inspired me to write this is I was on a photo forum where someone was saying, I just got this great new camera and it's got a USB-C plug in it. So I plugged it and connected it to my iMac and the photos took forever to get onto the iMac. And before I could answer, a half a dozen other people had said, you got the wrong USB-C cable. Now, I'm old enough to remember that when you had a USB-A cable, it did the same no matter what it was plugged into. All the cables, whatever color they were, they all did the same thing. USB-C cables are very different. 
I once noticed that I was trying to sync a movie onto my partner's iPad, which has USB-C. It's the recent whatever the standard iPad is. And it was really slow. And I was thinking, well, this is the USB-C cable that came with my iPad Pro. But of course, it's only at USB 2 speed, not USB 3. So it's really slow. And I look at the cable and it's just an Apple white cable. There's nothing that says what speed it is. This cable is capable of charging an iPad, and I use it for my iPad Pro, but there are other USB-C cables that look exactly the same and can send more data but can't charge devices. So this is just, there's landmines everywhere. And then you have to realize that that same little plug in the back, that USB-C plug, also does Thunderbolt, which goes up to like 80 gazillion megabits per second. And there's barely any way to tell these cables apart. The, the only way to know about this, and I'm going to hold up here, I bought myself a Thunderbolt cable. It's a USB-C plug, but it has a little Thunderbolt logo. They don't all have this. I would recommend anyone who needs a high-speed cable to get Thunderbolt because it's compatible with every other speed behind it. But the problem is now that we have these, the same USB-C port, which... We're going to pretty soon get in the iPhone, I'm sure. We've got it. Both of my iPads, my iPad Pro and my iPad Mini have it. You're starting to see it in cameras and other devices. And there's no way to tell the cables apart. Yeah, it's sort of problematic. <laughs> at, at least on a Mac, you do usually have, you've got a great photo in the article that you wrote showing the back of the, the modern iMac. So there's four ports that all look the same. And if you're just reaching around behind your computer, they all feel exactly the same when you're plugging things into them. If you have the least expensive iMac model, it only has two ports, and those ports are both Thunderbolt and USB 4. And and if you look behind, you'll see that there's two Thunderbolt logos. Uh, there's one over each port. If you have any other new iMac model, then you actually have four ports, but only two have that Thunderbolt logo over the top of them. The other two are USB 3 ports. So you've got the Thunderbolt slash USB 4 You've got two of those and you've got two USB three. They all use the USB C connector. This is not easy to figure all this stuff out. So I'm very glad that you wrote this article. Okay, so what gets even more complicated is just trying to understand the USB-C because, well, there's USB-C 3.0, and there's 3.1, and then there's 3.1 Gen 2, and then there's 3.2, and it's like it you just can't understand it. So I, I have a screenshot of the different logos that are starting to be used for these cables. It took years for companies, well, for a standards organization to do this. And you've got the different cables that are 60 or 240 watts, and then you've got data that's 20 or 40 gigabits. I, I have a box. I was telling a friend the other day, I have a box with all my USB-C cables. It's not that big because we've only been using USB-C for seven years, I think, was the first MacBook that was USB-C only. I have a huge box with USB-A cables and older things, but the USB-C is smaller. I look at those cables, I have no idea what they can do. And you can't plug them in and find out. Your Mac's not going to say, well, this does this speed. The only way, there, there is actually a way to do it. If you plug one into a device and you go to system information and then you click USB, you will see the throughput to the device, but not of the cable itself. But if you're trying to connect a cable from one USB-C device to another, you can't know. It's really confusing. So as I said, 
you're probably better off buying a Thunderbolt cable. I bought one which is from CalDigit. CalDigit is a company that makes a number of hubs and devices like that, that sort of, they make a, um, a device that splits a single Thunderbolt port to 18 different ports, which are USB-A, USB-C, HDMI, audio, etc. This cable cost half of what Apple's cost. Apple's cable here was 39 pounds. The one I bought was 20 pounds. I would recommend if you're in doubt and you need to transfer data and power to get a Thunderbolt cable like this, this is a 40 gigabit, which is not the fastest, but it's going to be faster than what I need. And then you'll be certain that it's going to work. But then we're at the point where we've got all these dongles and hubs that we need to attach to older devices. And it's just like it's dongle land here on my desk. I'm just looking at all the things because, uh, you know, we're at this period where we're doing this transition. And I think USB-C is very good because it goes in either way. But we need extra hardware to make sure all our existing devices work. The most obvious advantage of USB-C over the old USB-A is that it's a reversible port, meaning that you can plug it in upside and downside, and it's exactly the same no matter how you plug it in. Old USB-A, you could only plug it in one direction. That's what I hate about that. And, and micro USB is the same. I, I have a Kindle that uses micro USB, and I look at it, and I look at the port, and I plug it in, it's the wrong way. I turn it, it's the wrong way, and then I go back. So... That, that will be the advantage. Worth pointing out that USB-C is becoming more common. I had a camera already two years ago that had USB-C. I think the latest Kindle Paperwhite also has USB-C. So it is going to be the standard. Of course, Apple's still holding on to lightning ports for iPhones. I kind of expect that's going to change soon, in part because the European Union is going to require it. So pretty soon we can get rid of all those older boxes of cables. And some of you probably still have those old Firewire cables and SCSI cables and Apple Talk cables, if you remember them. So get rid of your cables. Let's use USB-C. <laughs> Life will be a lot simpler. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.